Uh, well, friends, I, I don't know whether any of you went to the Boxing Day sales recently. Did anyone uh, visit the Boxing Day sales? Uh, no one's going to admit it. Um, but I reckon the Boxing Day sales revealed a considerable amount of fear in our society. Uh, you may have seen what happened at Westfield Parramatta, where people were crushed and injured uh, trying to grab helium balloons that fell from the ceiling uh, with freebies inside. Uh, they weren't even, um, you know, they, they were trivial things they were giving away, uh, things like coffee vouchers and so forth. But there seems to be such a fear of missing out that people are willing to trample on others. Or consider the biggest thing that sold during the Boxing Day sales. Can anyone guess what the biggest thing that sold uh, last year in the Boxing Day sales was? Wrapping paper? No? Good guess. Um, it wasn't wrapping paper. It wasn't the latest PlayStation or the latest gadget or latest novel. No, apparently what sold in great numbers this time around was, were air purifiers. You see, in the midst of bushfires and smoke, there seems to be a great fear of what it might mean for our health and for our future. In addition to all these things... Christians can also live with fear, can't we? Uh, often it comes because we can begin to think that being a Christian means that we are on the losing side. Uh, often it seems, doesn't it, that being a Christian is weak and foolish and unimpressive in the eyes of the world, whereas those in the world seem strong and impressive and wise. Uh, I can feel this way, for example, as I see many of my non-Christian friends working really hard and getting ahead in life, whereas my Christian commitments often means that I don't rise up the corporate ladder nearly as quickly, if at all. Or I can feel this way as I see many of my non-Christian friends freely en enjoying what seems to be the good life a life of endless food and travel, while my Christian commitments often means that I can't be taken away from my Christian commitments. Or I can feel this way as I see public Christians hated and maligned and ridiculed by the media and those who shape public opinion so that I feel unsafe as a Christian. What are the things that you fear as a result of being a Christian person. What are the sorts of fears that you and I are taking with us as we enter into a new year in 2020? Well, last week we began a new sermon series looking at uh, some of the Psalms uh, in the Bible. And uh, I want to suggest that the Psalm that we're looking at this morning from Psalm 53 is one that speaks of the reality of fearing those who oppose God and his people. For the ones who oppose God are the ones who seem to be the winners, often. They are the ones who seem powerful and impressive and wise in this world, and yet I want you to see that in God's eyes, they are nothing but fools. You can see it there in verse 1. Have a look with me at... Uh, Psalm 53, verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. 
There is none who does good. Now, it's important to see that the word for fool that you see there does not mean somebody who is unthinking or a nitwit or an idiot. Rather, it's speaking about the person who lives life with the wrong assumption. What is that wrong assumption? Well, it's the assumption that there is no God and therefore there is no one to whom I am accountable. And so this passage is not really about uh, what you might call philosophical or reasoned atheism, as it is so often made out to be, but it's about practical atheism. In other words, God calls fools those who live practically as though there was no God to whom they are accountable. Now, this will obviously include those who are philosophical atheists, although uh, in my experience, there are not too many genuine philosophical atheists around who have really thought about their position. There are some, but there are not many. Most people who claim to be atheists, you will find, are really agnostics who, if you press them, do not really believe that there is no God in this world, but they're just simply unsure about whether there is a God or not. In fact, uh, you may have heard about the easy way to turn an atheist into an agnostic. Uh, Has anyone uh, heard about the easy way to turn an atheist into an agnostic? Um, You simply ask the atheist... What percentage of the world's knowledge do you think you possess? Uh, If they are realistic, they might say something like, well, less than 1%. Then you say, well, do you think it's possible that God has revealed himself in the other 99% of the world's knowledge that is out there? Unless they are completely arrogant, they will say, yes, well, I suppose that's possible. Congratulations, you've just turned an atheist into an agnostic. And yet here's the thing. The fool in this passage is not just the philosophical atheist or the agnostic, but it is speaking about those who are practical atheists, who live life as though there is no God to whom they are ultimately accountable to. And you see this kind of practical atheism everywhere, don't you? Uh, You see it among the non-religious, obviously. But you also see it among the religious. In fact, it is the religious form of practical atheism that is so dangerous. For it is possible to appear outwardly uh, religious, claiming to believe in a God, and yet say in your heart, inside, that there is no God, and to live life as though there is no God to whom... I am ultimately accountable. Uh, Now, friends, uh, because the heart of the practical atheist is corrupt, notice in the passage that it leads to corrupt deeds. In verse 1, the foolish are the ones who do abominable iniquity and the opposite of what God calls good. In other words, inner corruption in the human heart, leads to outer corruption. Or, if I can change metaphors, an inwardly diseased tree will always produce outwardly diseased fruit. Uh, This, of course, is what the Puritans called total depravity. 
now, the doctrine of total depravity does not teach that human beings are all as evil and depraved as we can possibly be. For that would obviously be untrue. But it is saying that because of the corruption of our foolish hearts, which have rejected God, well, there is actually no part of us that is untainted or uncorrupted by that, including our speech and our actions and our thoughts. Uh, I don't know about you, friends, but if you could see the things that I have done in my life and said to other people and thought about in my mind, uh, often in private, then I'm sure that you would conclude that I am a depraved person. And I'm guessing that that is the same for you as well. And so what the psalmist is talking about here is not an intellectual problem, but a moral problem. It is the moral problem of a person rejecting God in their hearts such that they convince themselves that there is actually no God and I am not accountable to him. Uh, That's why even the little old lady who keeps all the rules and lives a decent life is still a fool in God's eyes if she keeps on living life as though there were no God, you see. Uh, You might have heard the illustration of the captain of the Navy uh, looking out of uh, his telescope and seeing another ship in the distance. He sees that all the crew on the other ship seem to be working very hard in hoisting the sails and scrubbing the deck and doing all those things that sailors do. And yet the captain then points his telescope upwards and he sees that on top of the ship is a black flag with a cross and skull bone, uh, with a a skull bone and cross on it. In other words, it's a pirate ship. And so the captain is concerned, and he sails over to to this ship. Um, But rather than destroying the pirate ship, what he does is he lays out a bridge, and he gives the sailors on the other ship time to cross over to the naval ship and be pardoned if they would only leave their pirating ways behind. Now, the pirates have three options, as far as I can tell. Uh, Firstly, they can cross over, can't they, and be pardoned. Secondly, they can think over it a little bit more, but risk time running out. Or thirdly, they can remain on the ship and eventually be destroyed. But what they cannot do is simply pull up their socks and just try to work a little bit harder. For the problem is not their inability to do some good things. The problem is that they are on the wrong ship to begin with. That's the moral problem, isn't it? Now, friends, it's easy at this point to see these fools that the Bible speaks about as people out there, isn't it? Perhaps we think of the non-Christian or pagan world when we think of people living in foolishness. Or at least we think that it must not be talking about me, it must be talking about some other person. And yet I want to say that you cannot read this psalm in the Bible and not be struck by the universality of what the psalmist is talking about here. 
Uh, let's pick it up from verse 2. Have a look with me at verse 2. Verse 2 says, God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all fallen away. Together they have become, become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Uh, you see, here we have a picture of God himself looking down from heaven, scrutinizing humanity. It's as though he's looking through a magnifying glass to see if there is anyone who is wise and understanding and who seeks God in their lives. And what is the verdict? Well, it says there that they have all fallen away. They have all become corrupt. There is not one person who does what is good in God's eyes. Uh, It's the same as what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1. If you remember Romans 1, Paul says that even though people know of God's power and divinity from the things that have been made, well, they have universally become fools because they have exchanged the worship of God, the rightful worship of God, for the worship of idols and of created things. And further, in Romans 3, Paul lumps both pagans and Jews together and quotes from this very psalm in Psalm 53 to say that all of humanity, whether Jew or Gentile, have become fools in the rejection of God. Uh, You see, friends, uh, if we are people who belong to Jesus, then this psalm reminds us that we were once just as foolish as the rest of the world in our rejection of God, but for his grace and his mercy in changing us. Further, God's word reminds us that even though we may be saved by this astonishing grace of God, well, we still find it a struggle because we wrestle with our sinfulness and our foolishness in our lives, don't we? And so we who belong to Christ can often live life thinking that we are not accountable to God for our actions and not seeking God. Is that that true of you as it is true of me? I mean, friends, think back over 2019. How much of your life decisions and my life decisions would you say were made with a genuine seeking of God's will? I'm sure we've all made decisions about our work, perhaps, or where to live, or uh, what to study, or how we use our time, or how we use our money. Uh, We all make uh, decisions, both big and small, in many ways. Would you say that these decisions, that in these decisions, rather, you were genuinely seeking God, desiring to please him? Could you articulate from the scriptures why the decisions that you have made in your life might be pleasing in God's sight? Uh, Philip Jensen, who was the main Bible teacher at Campus Bible Study at the University of New South Wales, used to say that the one who seeks God with all his heart, mind and soul will make major life decisions in this order. Um, firstly, 
He will choose a ministry or a church that he is going to commit to because the most important thing in life is to serve God and his people. Secondly, he will choose to live as close to that church or ministry as possible because he wants to maximize his opportunities to be able to serve God and his people. Thirdly, he will choose a job that will allow him to finance this kind of commitment. Now, I'm sure we can think of all sorts of exceptions to that general um, rule. But you see, this is the kind of person that seeks God with all their heart, mind and soul, isn't it? But so often we get it around the wrong way and we make decisions in completely the wrong order. If that's you, then God would say that that is foolishness and you and I need to repent. Now, will you repent as you hear God's word if you've been living in foolishness? Well, uh, in Psalm 53, uh, What are these fools who say in their hearts there is no God really like? Well, you can see there that they are the people who eat up God's people just like food. In other words, they consume God's people like they would consume a piece of bread. And you can see it there in verse 4, can't you? Verse 4, Have those who work evil no knowledge, who eat up my people as they eat bread, and do not call upon God? It's interesting that although all of humanity are described as fools in the first three verses, here in verse 4, you suddenly have two groups of people, don't you? Uh, You have those who continue in their foolishness, and, and then on the other hand, you have those who trust in God and rely on God, and they are described here as my people. And it is those who continue in their foolishness who eat up God's people like a piece of bread. In other words, they consume God's people, they take advantage of them and mistreat them because in their hearts they think, well, there is no God I am accountable to. Now friends, uh, what situation do you think the psalmist is referring to here in this psalm? Uh, I don't know whether you noticed, but often it's difficult to work out the precise uh, historical context of many of the Psalms. But here, I think we are given a few clues that can help us to understand something of what might might have been going on as the psalmist penned this psalm. Uh, Firstly, did you know that this psalm is almost a carbon copy of Psalm 14? Now, uh, I want you to keep one finger in Psalm 53 and uh, flip over backwards to Psalm 14 with me. Uh, Flip over to Psalm 14 and uh, just quickly scan your eye down Psalm 14 and uh, tell me what differences you notice between the two Psalms. They're very similar, but uh, what what are some differences that you notice uh, with Psalm 14? Uh, I'll give you a few moments just to uh, have a think about that. If anyone notices anything, you can just call it out. Fallen away? Yep. Say again, I can't quite hear you, Shane. 
Yeah, yeah. There, there's a slight difference uh, in how um, that attitude of sin is expressed, isn't it? Uh, that there are a few differences like that. Any other differences? Psalm 14 is in present tense, whereas uh, Psalm 53, some of the verbs there are in in uh, past tense. Yep, yep. There's there's one thing I'm fishing for here. <laughs> Those are all true. Uh, okay, so uh, Psalm 14 seems a bit more comforting, whereas uh, Psalm 53 seems a little bit condemning. Yeah, um, that may be true. Um, but I, I think you've hit upon uh, something else in what you've just said. Um, notice that in Psalm uh, 14, the personal name of God is used. So uh, you see the word Lord in capital letters? Um, that translates the word Yahweh, which is God's personal name, whereas you don't see that in Psalm 53, do you? Uh, the more generic word God is used. You see that? And so it seems to me that Psalm 14 is directed against fools who were actually part of the nation of Israel and who knew Yahweh, who knew the, the, the Lord of Israel. Whereas Psalm 53 is directed against fools who were not part of Israel but who were foreigners to Israel and to her God. And I think this is confirmed because if you um, come back with me to Psalm 53 uh, and look at verse 5, Psalm 53, uh, if you have a look at verse 5, you'll see there that it refers to people who encamp against God's people. You see it there? Now, it's likely that this is referring to a military siege of some sort. Uh, You know, in the ancient world, uh, they didn't uh, engage in war the way that we engage in war. Uh, In the ancient world, cities had high walls surrounding it. And so uh, if you wanted to attack a city, uh, what you did was you, you set up a camp outside the city um, and you, you laid siege to the city and you cut off any sort of supplies or food coming into the city so that after a while the city would slowly starve to death as no food can be, or, or water could be brought into the city. And so it's likely that this Psalm, historically, refers to a siege situation in Jerusalem, uh, probably the nation of Assyria who came and laid siege to the city of God during the time of King Hezekiah. And uh, you can read about this in 2 Kings chapter 18 to 20. 2 Kings chapter 18 to 20. However, friends, uh, it has always been the case, hasn't it, that God's people have been under siege by those who seem more powerful and more impressive and more wise, but are in fact fools in God's sight. So, for example, in China, there has been a recent crackdown on house churches that worship the Lord Jesus Christ above the politics of the communist government of the day. Just this week, you may have heard that the atheistic government has sentenced Pastor Wang Yi 
who is the leader of the early reign covenant church, to nine years imprisonment for proclaiming the name of Jesus and refusing to adhere to the political agenda of the government. Fools eating up God's people like bread. Uh, Some time ago, I I spoke to a Christian person living in a Muslim-majority country. Uh, When I asked him about life in that country as a Christian, well, he said that the Muslim-majority are so discriminatory against Christian people that they simply do not have the same employment opportunities as everyone else. And so Christians are, by and large, economically poor in that country. Fools eating God's people like bread. Or in our part of the world, there is a constant belittling and harassment and ridicule of public Christians like Margaret Court, for example, for holding orthodox Christian views on sex and marriage and things of eternal significance. You and I, I'm sure, feel this kind of pressure in our places of work and study and among people we know. Fools eating up God's people like bread. And so because Christians are often eaten up and consumed by those who seem powerful and impressive and and wise in the eyes of this world, well, it's very easy to become lukewarm, isn't it, as Christians? And just blend into the society and compromise our faith. We are so afraid of the world that we begin to live like fools, you see. Is that true of you? As I know it is true of me at times. But friends, here's where Psalm 53 offers profound comfort. For the final verses encourage God's people to look to the finale that God has in store for the foolish who eat up God's people like a piece of bread. You can see it there from verse 5, can't you? Verse 5, there they are in great terror, where there is no terror. For God scatters the bones of him who encamps against you. You put them to shame, for God has rejected them. Oh, that salvation for Israel will come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Now, it's a bit challenging to work out here um, at the beginning of verse 5 what it is saying, and in particular, who the they is referring to. Uh, Some people think that it's speaking about God's people who are in great terror because they are besieged by the Assyrian army, but there is in actual fact no terror because God is with them. That could be one possibility. But I think the psalmist here is talking not about God's people, but about the foolish Assyrians, for they are now in great terror, whereas a moment ago there was no terror, you see. In other words, this is talking about God's judgment falling on the Assyrians suddenly, dramatically, and terrifyingly. Which, if you know the story, is precisely what happened to the Assyrians in 2 Kings chapter 19. One minute they were laying siege to the city of Jerusalem, the next minute 
the Lord himself comes down and wipes out 185,000 of them so that their bodies lay strewn all over the outside of Jerusalem. And so here is an encouragement for God's people to look to the future finale where God will ultimately judge fools who say in their hearts, there is no God. The end of those who reject God will be God rejecting them. You see there in verse 5 that this judgment of God is spoken of in the present tense because in God's mind it is as good as done. However, in verse 6 it is spoken of in the future tense because the people of God will need to trust that God will do it in the future as he has promised. Uh, in my primary school days, uh, I remember that our school had a rugby team. Uh, we weren't very good. Uh, most of the players were scrawny little Asian kids. And uh, I remember that every single game we played, we were down by uh, many, many points at half time. And uh, you could see the opposition team gloating. But we also knew that things were not as it seemed. Why? Well, some of you know this story, but we had Eddie on our team. Uh, I don't know what Eddie's parents fed him, but he was six feet tall and built like a tank in, in, uh, in primary school. And so in the second half of the game, uh, our game plan was really very simple. It was just get Eddie the ball. And we would just watch in astonishment as Eddie steamrolled over the opposition and we would run out winners every single time. You see, things were not as it seemed. <laughs> That's kind of what is going on here, isn't it? Are you fearful of what your life will be like if you stick with Jesus? Do you sometimes have this niggling doubt that following Jesus will mean that you are going to be on the losing side? Are you afraid that uh, living with Jesus as your king will mean that you miss out in life? Because, well, frankly, that's what it sometimes feels like at times, doesn't it? Well, God says in the psalm that things are not what they seem. For in Jesus' death on the cross... What looked like foolishness was actually the wisdom of God. And what looked like weakness was actually God's power in defeating our greatest enemies of sin and death and the devil. And God in his word promises that a day is coming when the Lord Jesus Christ himself will come, will return suddenly, dramatically and unexpectedly, and destruction will fall upon the foolish who say in their heart, there is no God. In our New Testament reading today from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it says in verse 3, while people are saying there is peace and security, there is no terror here, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. And so, how are we to live as God's people? Well, firstly, we are to encourage one another and build one another up. As 
the passage in 1 Thessalonians says, so that we will not live like fools, but as those who are wise in seeking after God's will, so that we will be ready for that day of judgment when it comes, faithfully living with our trust firmly in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death for us on the cross. But secondly, I wonder whether we need to feel the tension of what God's finale will actually mean. I mean, on the one hand, we should desire Jesus to return and put everything right in this world, all the things that are wrong in this world. And so our hearts cry, come, Lord Jesus, come. We want you to come. And yet we know that the foolish who say in their hearts there is no God will face sudden ruin and destruction on that day, some of whom will be our family and our children and friends and neighbours whom we dearly love. And so we are to desire that God hold back his judgment, at least for a time, and give us a little bit more time while we urge people to turn to Christ before it's too late. Brothers and sisters, may 2020 be filled with the comfort of the gospel, which promises that in Christ, you and I will be on the winning side. But may 2020 be also filled with much prayer and urging of people around us to turn from their foolishness and to turn to Christ for salvation and for joy. Will you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your amazing grace that has turned foolish enemies like us into your friends by the blood of Jesus. I thank you that through his death and resurrection, we who trust in him have been given forgiveness and the hope of salvation from your judgment, something that we do not deserve. Uh, we thank you for this, and we pray that, I, that you would continue to shape us and mould us and train us by your grace to live as your people. And yet, Father, we know that we still struggle with sin and foolishness in our hearts. We often live and make decisions as though you were not there. And so we plead with you and we ask for your forgiveness and mercy for the times that we have lived like this. And we pray that you would help us to repent and take action where necessary so that we might live lives that seek you and serve you with all our heart, mind and soul. And Father, we thank you for bringing us into a new year and we pray that this year might be marked not by fear but by the joy of being your people. Help us to not give up meeting together but doing so all the more as we see the last day approaching. Help us to encourage each other so that we do not give up in the Christian race. And help us to partner with you and one another to love those around us by making the name of Jesus known. And we pray that many will turn to him before it is too late by your mercy and by your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.